0: In this episode, the Changing Character of War program welcomes Dr. Heather Roth, a Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Politics and International Relations, and the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law, and Armed Conflict. Dr. Roth's research investigates a future where machines, not humans, might be authorized to make and wage wars. She joins us to talk about the moral quandary of autonomous weapons systems. Today, I want to do two things. One is to situate the, the question of what an autonomous system is. This has been a large debate going on in international um, debates right now with the United Nations, with the ICRC, and other uh, member states. Because I can walk into a room and say autonomous weapon system, and somebody will think of a Roomba. Another person might walk into a room and say autonomous weapon system, and think of a remotely piloted aircraft that has a human making targeting decisions and flying. Um, and somebody else can walk into the room and say autonomous weapon system and think of the Terminator, the Skynet. So we have this very large division between what we mean by autonomous weapon systems. And the more and more you push on it, the more and more you see that as the as you say, well, it does this and it does this and it does this, the distinctions start to get quite fuzzy between what's the difference between an automated system and an autonomous one. So this is my attempt to use kind of conceptual coherence and meet multiple disciplinary discussions and definitions of autonomy, bring them together, that they can all talk to one another, and then problematize that a little bit, um, particularly from a moral perspective and philosophy and just war thinking, as well as legal thinking. So what is an autonomous weapon system? According to the U.S. DOD, um, DOD Directive 3000.09 from 2012, this is a system that can once activated select and engage targets without intervention by a human operator. The the emphasis here is on select and engage, and that's it. How that comes about, under what circumstances, for what time, we don't know. This includes human supervised systems, something like the Israeli Iron Dome, or perhaps um, a counter rocket and mortar system as well, um, if they're selecting and engaging, and if the DOD says that's an autonomous weapon system. But at present, they have excluded all existing systems from the discussion. So the DOD says that everything we have currently in play is not an autonomous system, only future systems will be autonomous systems. So that's also something to keep in mind. In this country, the UK MOD also has a policy position on on autonomous weapon systems. These are the only two states publicly to come out with definition and or policy statements on autonomous weapon systems out of the 190 states. Um, systems that operate without human intervention in the weapon command and control chain. If you want to talk about big, I think this is a good place to start. Um, I also would submit that this is such a big and broad definition that it is so encompassing because no military commander that I know, or in I think the history of the world would say, yes, please, can you give me a person or a system that operates outside of my command and control. I love that. Militaries don't like that, right? They want to be in control of the effects. They want to be in control of their forces. So this is kind of an odd system, or an odd situation of, of defining a system. Because what it does, it defines the, the, the threshold so high that nothing could ever really amount to an autonomous weapon system. Thereby saying, when the UK when the UK claims to say that it will never adopt an autonomous weapon system, it's because it's almost an impossibility that any military would ever want to adopt something that has this characteristic. Then we have the ICRC, the International Committee for the Red Cross, and the ICRC basically takes what I would call a functionalist account to the definition. They say something like, a weapon system possesses autonomy in the critical functions, and they give some examples of what critical functions are. These are not exclusive, these are not, um, and they're not um, in total. So this would be something for like searching for an object, identifying, tracking, intercepting, using force against, neutralizing, damaging, or destroying. Um, and again, without human intervention. But notice all of these definitions focus on various things, either the functional capability of a system, either the action or decision that is being undertaken, or let's just say, <coughs> in the UK case, fantastical things that will never exist. I mean, this might as well say unicorn on it and, I will never use unicorns in the laws for it. So, that, so I think we have some big space. And these are the, publicly, the best kind of publicly available definitions we have at present, which makes it very hard when you're talking in international um, organizations about what to do, how to regulate. And I've participated. There's been uh, the last three years the United Nations has had an informal meeting of experts every year, one week a year, in Geneva, under the auspices of the convention on certain conventional weapons, to discuss uh, whether to prohibit or regulate autonomous systems. Um, For the past two years, I've been an invited expert to give testimony to the member states about this. And so I can tell you that these discussions are fraught (laughs) and um, ultimately frustrating especially when you have somebody like the ICRC in the back of the room saying something like this. We believe that this is important to have a clear, common understanding of what the object of discussion is, Um, and in particular, what constitutes an autonomous (laughs) weapon. Without engaging in a definition exercise, there is a need to set the boundaries of discussion. Is it the Terminator, is it a unicorn, or is it your Roomba? We need to know what it is we're regulating. So boundaries, so taking up The ICRC's challenge, I launched a data project that um, has just come online if you're interested. Um, It is a data set of autonomy and weapon systems that categorized 284 systems on about 13 to 14 indicators. It's on uh, the Global Security Initiative's website. And it attempts to take this critical functions approach and say, well, where are we now? And then where are we going with empirical evidence? That's the conceptual, that's the empirical side. This is the conceptual side that I'm going to give you today. So, what would the boundaries be? Initially, we have to think about what the boundaries between automated, which everybody thinks of as permissive and permissible, and autonomous. We can think of this in two distinct, but they might be two categories, right? Some things are automated, some things are autonomous. If you think of them in classes this way, as distinctly, uniquely two, di- a dichotomy of two things, you could say, well, on the automated account, they might be something like they're predictable, they're reliable, the action, the, um, the sensory input, and then the action is direct, they're simple, they're dumb. Um, this could be something like a Ford auto manufacturing plant that is just you know popping out widgets, right? That would be something automated. And it's perhaps better thought of as self-prompted. It can do something that it self-prompts to do, but it's not taking into consideration its, its own goals and its reasoning about its ends. Autonomous, on the other hand, might be thought of as unpredictable, unreliable, indirect, complex, smart, and perhaps self-determining. And these, these ideas consistently get um, trotted out again and again. But if it, would it help if I dim the lights a bit? Um, or I, can people see? Dim the lights? I'm seeing some squinting happening, so. Mm-hmm. In an effort. Is <laughs> anything happening? No. Um, so, oh well. Okay, so. There's one. <laughs> Technology. There we go. All right. So. Often they're pitted against one another, and sometimes what is defined as autonomous is that which is just, in, in a negative definition, that which, that which is not automated. But sometimes we might want to think about this not as a distinct difference of classes, but along a continuum that you could have automated on one end and autonomous on another, and that there's all sorts of degrees of difference between the two. And this continuum, some people say, you know, it's gonna go all the way up to a point, and then it magically becomes autonomous. For if there's any engineers in the room, this is a common understanding by levels of automation by Sheridan and Planck, Sheridan and Planck, Sheridan and Planck, from 1977, which was um, a discussion about levels of automation. And Sheridan and Planck gave 10 levels of automation. And they said it starts with, the human does everything. And then number the 10, the machine does everything. And then in between are randomly assigned, I think quite rather arbitrarily designed as d- levels. Um, and they're supposed to be discrete doing these different jobs. Um, I think that's actually the wrong way to look at it because from one to eight, it's human ro- Well, From two to eight, it's human robot interaction. And then one is human. And the last one is something completely different. So it's quite odd to think of it this way. But this is another way that it gets discussed as um, a boundary. I think all of these are insufficient ways of thinking about it, either as category mistakes or as levels of um, one kind of continuum going up. And I'm led more to think about the notion of complex adaptive systems and how complex adaptive systems have emergent properties. And I'm thinking through this. Um, in my own work right now, and so I'm totally open to your suggestions of how to rethink this. But I think there's something different about the notion of autonomy, particularly autonomy in weapon systems, that is emergent. It's an emergent property of a system. So the grain of sand problem, I think we can get at this if we think of the grain of sand problem, but reverse it. So the grain of sand problem says, look, you might have um, a pile of sand. You know, everybody can envision in their head a pile of sand. And you can take each individual grain of sand away until all of a sudden it's no longer a pile of sand. But the idea would be that you can't get to the idea or the kind of sand-like qualityness of of the pile until you have a certain amount of sand there. Um, And you can't conceptualize it by saying it's this amount of grains of sand. Likewise, you can think of this, if that doesn't work for you, with water. So H2O is the water element. Right? but H2O as a distinct kind of what is water doesn't get at the quality of wetness. Wetness is an emergent property of water. So these are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. So if we think that the critical functions in autonomous systems may all individually be automated, that is they can or they cannot do it, and they may or may not be able to do it well or, or poorly, But if you think of those as automated but somehow when we put things together in a particular way there's something that is emergent something that is more than the sum of its parts and then i think drawing from not just thinking about complex adaptive systems but um ethics then you say well what is it about autonomy that's particularly important and i think there's a couple things here that we can learn from philosophy. So one is that you can say, look, we in philosophy, when we have um, a question about, you know, the right thing to do, we do one or two things. One, we can evaluate the action. Did it maximize some set of good goods, some non-moral goods, right? Is it, you know, are you a consequentialist or utilitarian? You're looking at the outcome and you're evaluating the outcome or the act. Or sometimes you could say it's not the act, it's the actually, it's the it's the quality of the agent who's acting. So in more deontological conceptions, um, you say, look, it's my intention. Did I, was I intending to do X, Y, and Z, regardless of what happened with the outcome? So these are ways in which we sometimes think about the right thing to do in the evaluation of acts when it comes to autonomous moral agents acting in various ways. So I think if you put these two things together, thinking about autonomy and weapon systems, as well as what we're talking about, we're thinking, well, what is an autonomous weapon system? and What do we want to do with it? I think we have to ultimately think about this as both. Why do I think we, it has to be both? Because an autonomous weapon system, as you'll see in a second, is something that is both object and agent. It is something that is not a moral agent, but it has agency. It has cognitive capacities and decision making. It can do planning. Artificial intelligence right now has, we talk about artificial intelligence as agents that can move around their environment, doing certain things, making decisions. These have agency, but they might not be moral agents in the way that we think of them. Presently in, in, in full up philosophical terms, as a moral agent as the subjects of rights and duties. But it's also an object that in general we would say we want to evaluate the task at hand and how well or poorly it does the task. And this is something I think that we can get our head around a bit more then. So in a recent paper uh, that I wrote with Professor David Dinks of Carnegie Carnegie Mellon, we say that autonomy is about a system's ability to carry out a particular task assigned to it by um, someone or something, maybe itself, without the intervention of the human operator, where the performance depends upon various other cap- capabilities or capacities related to its autonomy. So for the, pol- for the philosophers in the room or the political theorists in the room, you can think of this kind of as a, as a throwback to Martha Nussbaum and her capabilities approach. So what would be some of these general categories of capabilities? Well, I think when it comes to a weapon system, we're going to have a bundle of things happening. And we can divide them along three lines. One line of capabilities would have to do with movement, right? because we're talking about something that's going to be moving around in time and space. Even if that's non-kinetically, even if that's in the cyber system, it's got to be able to move within the network. Then you can think about things like detection, right? because I might give a direction for a weapon system to go attack a target x, but it has to be able to detect That target once there. Not select it, but detect it. So, this has to do with something about weapons release and detection. And then finally, I think when we're talking about autonomous systems, we have to also take into consideration planning, learning, and adaptation. So, if you think of these three things, these three general bundles of capabilities, you can actually look at an existing weapon system and you can say, I'm going to categorize this into three indices. My first index would look at things like self-mobility. <laughs> um, how well does an autonomous weapon system position itself in the world? Um, how, that is, how does it go through purposive movement through its environment to find a location, um, to guide or home in on something? So lots of precision-guided munitions right, would fall in this area, self-mobility. Some systems might be completely stationary. Um, you can think of counter rocket and mortar systems on forward operating bases. You might think, well, that's not. R-. You might think, well, um, maybe a C-RAM version of a weapon on a ship. Maybe the ship is mobile or something. But you can start thinking about it in terms of how well is this thing moving around? If it's just flailing about, that's not a good thing. The second one <coughs> would be to think about self direction. And self-direction for me again is um, how well a system um, can aim and employ weapons. How how well can it aim at something, detect that thing that it's aiming at, and then employ weapons against it? And So, fire control issues, acquisition issues. Does it have target acquisition? Does it have automatic target reco- So, automatic. Does it have automatic target recognition? Um, does it have a seeker? Uh, what happens with the seeker when you put something it, it looks at a certain area called its acquisition basket and it has all these different things that are going inside its acquisition basket. Can it do these types of things? Out of all of the known kind of capabilities and systems, how, how many of those things does it have? Does it have none of them? right? That would be bad too. These would be dumb bombs, right? And then I think the crux of it is when you add this, this last this last bit here, which is self-determination. And this is qualitatively different than the other two indexes, um, the other two elements. And that is, this idea is about cognition and vol- volitional capacities. So we wanna understand how or whether a system can give itself goals, can formulate plans and act on those goals. Um, this to me involves higher order cognitive and cognitive um, aspects. So, the cognitive aspect is what is the fact that I'm thinking, you know, what is the purpose or the fact or the, the idea or the, the general principle or the law? What is the specific situation that I find myself in? Does the specific fall under the general? It's very kind of formulated reasoning and like analytical political thought. But the cognitive part is like slightly different. This is whether or not my subjective state of mind, my feelings, are actually working alongside. Um, my judgments and my my cognitive reasoning capacities. You might say to yourself, wow, Dr. Roth, you've completely gone off your wagon. You're talking about emotions and machines. And I would submit again that when we're talking about agents in multi-agent systems that would be able to go through various higher order capabilities of (laughs) undertaking a proportionality Um, calculation in a particular instance of armed conflict, it's exactly these kinds of emotive and cognitive um, bits that you would want the system (coughs) to have. We also have work being done in artificial intelligence right now on artificial emotion, and on various ways in which you can use emotions, or things like artificial hormones or pheromones to get systems to do what you want them to do. So I don't think it's actually beyond the scope of possibility to think that you would have a system, an artificial agent with cognitive capacities and something akin to an artificial emotion to help guide it on the right way to the right action. I'll give you another example of what I mean by this. So um, how many of you in here have ever heard of a neural network? How many of you in here have ever heard of a deep neural network? How many of you in here have ever heard of a reinforcement learning deep neural network? So, a neural network is a way in which um, you give a computer, it's a learning system, it's gonna say image recognition, context scene, you know, show it a picture, and through all sorts of massive amounts of data, it's going to have certain input values and an output value. And then it's gonna have a little hidden layer of nodes of neurons that you don't know exactly how things are waiting. It's trained to look at for various things, and then it's kind of set off and goes. It's much more technical, but I'm not going to get into it for the audience. But um, but the idea here is that you're training it to recognize certain patterns, and when you get that, when that pattern is right, you give it a reward, just like you would a dog. If you want to say, "Please sit" to your dog, and it just looks at you, "Please sit," it just looks at you, and all of a sudden, maybe you raise your hand and it sits down. Oh, that's so great! Yay! And the dog goes, "Oh, that's what you wanted me to do." Oh, okay and then you do it again, and then you give it a treat. And all of a sudden this reinforcement paradigm comes in so that it starts to recognize what it is you want it to do. That's reinforcement learning. We've added that into, the, into how we do computational learning. We give it points or values or we weight things certain ways. So this kind of weighting, this reinforcement, is something like what we get as humans, right? Which is we get a good feeling when we do something nice or maybe if you're more deterministic, our hormones release nice endorphins when we do something that we think is nice. However that works, it's a reinforcement of something good to tell us this is the right action, do the right thing. And if you're going to have an autonomous system acting in and amongst humans or out here, away from humans (coughs) human commanders, but in a human population, you better be sure it's going to do the right thing. It's going to uphold the laws of war going to undertake discrimination, proportionality, assessing precaution. But how do you teach it to do that when it's learning? So this is why I think the cognitive capacities are equally important. Okay. so I didn't like my little lines before, right? But I do think what you get is something like this. So it's not two categories. It's not even one dimension. It's actually, I think, a three-dimensional space multidimensional, you have self-direction, self-determination, and self-mobility. And you can imagine looking at a system and saying, where does it position itself along these three axes? And then I can evaluate it somehow along these three axes. Now, I'm a visual learner. So this is how I try to think of it in my head. That is that somewhere along these lines, the whole becomes more than the sum of its parts it has some sort of emergence that we would call autonomy. And it requires us to look at the functions and the capabilities, as well as the internal states of the agent acting, its cognitive and quantitative disposition, if you will, and then how these relate to the task at hand, or if you don't think about it in narrow terms as task, perhaps the goal that we give it. I've been in conversations with various state officials and they will say things like, um, an autonomous weapon system must understand commander's intent. So just keep that nugget with you when you think that you have to, it's not merely about the task, but it could also be about the goal, which is to comply with the rules of engagement, the laws of armed conflict and commander's intent. All of which are very, nebulous concepts in, ver- in certain circumstances. We might think the principle of, of distinction that, you know, that shalt not be indiscriminate um, with relation to the use of force against civilians or civilian objects is a really easy rule to follow. Except, what if the civilian object is being used in a certain way that makes it a military ob- objective? That is, by its nature, purpose, location, or use, attacking it would give a direct military advantage. That's a more. That's the what the law says, but that's very contextual, right? The commander would have to know at that time that that civilian train is actually transporting material, things like this. So you need better, more con- um, content, and thus you have to think about what we're asking the machine to do. If it is a simple task, go on to like our missiles right now, go on to a location in space. That's what we tell it. GPS, go onto a location in space. Or take the hill. Very broad, right? Or understand commander's intent. If you still don't think you can understand what I'm talking about, <laughs> here's a nice little 3D graph, right? This actually means nothing other than the fact that you could, you could envision where systems may fall on the three axes. So if you had a handful of systems that you were trying to measure you could kind of place them in time and space to see. You say, oh, up here in the red part, maybe we're going to start getting into some emergent autonomous capacities. OK. okay. Say you buy my argument, which is a big one to buy. But let's just say you buy my argument. You say, I really like this emergence thing. This is nuanced. But here's the rub. What exactly is the quality of the emergence? What is the quality of autonomy here? is it technological capability or is it something on the order of free will or moral agency we might say that somehow magically autonomy emerges from all these capabilities but then what does the autonomy mean for the system and this i think is where our good pal aristotle and the Greeks can help us just when you thought it was safe to burn your Aristotle, must go back to him. Autonomos is typically thought of as, in the Greek, autonomos, self-governing, giving myself a law. Law is nomos. But in the Greek way of thinking about this, it's very much dependent on kind of a community, self-determining. You know, all of the men, don't worry about those women, all of the men who are also free, don't worry about those slaves going into the public space, the agora, and then making a law, casting their lots. Right. This was the kind of self-determining that we would talk about when we talk about autonomos. So I don't think that's the kind of thing that we would want to identify with an autonomous system. I don't see an autonomous system belonging to a community, holding something in common, going and casting lots, signing up to be emperor for a day. I don't see that. Right. What I do see is another concept in Greek that would be really helpful for us here, and that is autoexousia. And autoexousia is also a notion of autonomy, and it's about the power to act. It's about having the authorization to act and having the required moral faculties that would allow one to be delegated an authorization to act. So if you don't... um, Again, I think examples are really helpful here. So you can think of something like a power of attorney. A power of attorney says, I, have, I am a self-determining agent, but you know what? Um, I can't do some things right now. So for example, my husband and I bought a house um, six months ago or so, and I happened to be in Oxford at the time. I couldn't sign any of the papers. So I had to sign a power of attorney, saying he can sign all of the papers for me. I trust him within this scope, but only with this scope. The power of attorney said, <laughs> only in this scope, can you do this Then You can't, you know, do anything else. And so that would be me authorizing. I'd take my authorization, and I would delegate it to him. And he's capable of that, that authorization and delegation. <laughs> so delegation to phi, whatever phi happens to be. So what is the task, then, that we're trying to think about in relation to an autonomous weapon system that we're delegating? in the kind of auto exusia way. Well, at its most general level, I think it's a task to use force against a military objective. Whatever the quality of that force, whatever the objective has to be, at its most general level, it's this. To achieve a military advantage. Now, we could insert precaution, proportion, and all that stuff. I'm just going to leave that out. I'm just going to say, at its most general, the task is to use force against a military objective to get military advantage. Except, when it's an autonomous weapon system, it's selecting which targets to use force against by itself. Come, we come full circle back to US um, Department of Defense Directive 3009. It selects, not merely detects, it selects which objects to achieve to use force against, and perhaps even what kind of force to use against which then smuggles in all sorts of questions about precautions and proportionality. So if we say then that they're being delegated this task, now we have another question in front of us, which is where does the authorization to use force come from and how is it transmitted down to the system in a coherent way? Well, we can look at where the power to declare war comes from. So coming back to our lovely little just war theorists, we have um, the power to declare war would be an, a legitimate authority, those who are you know, authorizing war, whatever that, wherever that comes from, the people, the king, whatever. And then there are the authorized agents of war, that is the armed forces who are undertaking those actions. I have no idea quite yet where autonomous weapons fall in because they're an object and an agent at the same time. So the power to declare war has traditionally been about legitimate authority and how and where and how and from where those agents receive these rights, authorizations and obligations. It's all kind of you think of this as kind of bottom up and top-down at the same time. So if it's a democracy, you could say that's the power to um, all powers and rights lies with the people. Then the people through their representatives, right? Very Lockean, it says Congress, and so I'm American, Congress has the power to declare war. Congress in the, the U.S. government is a legitimate authority. The U.S. Armed Forces are the legitimate authorized agents of war. And when Congress authorizes, which it does very rarely anymore, but if it does, authorizes war, gives it to the executive, go fight, you are the head of the Armed Forces, and through a chain of command, It goes all the way down to the PFC on the ground. That's how it works, right? Once you get to the authorization for agents to use force in war, you say, those authorized agents of war can do certain things, certain things that they cannot do in peacetime. You can't go around shooting civilians in peacetime. Depending on the situation in war, You may. They may be collateral damage. They may be X, Y, or Z. Not making moral judgments, whatever it is, but there are certain permissions that you are allowed in armed conflict that you are not allowed in peacetime. And with those permissions to act come rights and responsibilities and obligations. So we say something like the combatant's privilege. The combatant's privilege is that they will not be tried. If they're acting within the bounds of armed conflict and the laws of war, they will not be tried for murder. They will only be tried for war crimes if they out- act outside, ex legates of armed conflict, of the international humanitarian laws. If they surrender, they have the combatant's privilege, They're POWs, they will not be tried. So this is, again, it's kind of a notion of a right and a responsibility. It's working at play here. So delegating the authorization is to delegate the moral right to use force. This is how it's been structured since we can think, um, at least in more modern times, maybe not, you know, Syrian or more modern times. Okay, But now we have to think about delegating moral rights to use force to non-moral agents. And this gets us into a bit of a quagmire. So an autonomous weapon is a weapon that decides. It doesn't matter what weapon is attached to it. That is, munition. It can have a precision-guided munition. It can have a gun. It can have a bomb. It can have a torpedo. It can have a laser. It can have anything. Not, we don't care about the munition. We care about the autonomy in the decision-making capacity of the system that is to select and engage. And all the things that go on, we have to think about selecting and engaging. So it's a weapon that decides. But I'm not clear. I don't think anybody's clear at this point. Well, I can say the technological, the state of technology now, it is clear. But in the future, not so clear. It is not clear that such systems possess the requisite moral faculties to make decisions that would allow them to have this authorization delegated to them permissibly. So that is the technological capabilities of systems. So if I offer a bone to the person who says, these systems are going to be better at discriminating between combatants and non-combatants. Facial recognition is better in computers right now than it is in people. These may be more humane to use. I'm going to offer that person a bone. I'm going to say, OK, let's say for the sake of argument that these systems can distinguish between combatant and non-combatant better. That's not sufficient. That's not sufficient to authorize the machine to take the decision to, to attack. Because also under moral and legal rules, you have to also be able to take precaution and proportionate force. And that is highly context, context sensitive. And you can't use something like what I in artificial intelligence go-fi good old-fashioned ai good old-fashioned ai is not going to get you there it's too brittle you can't see all the possible permutations of what's going to happen in a battle space and how your adversary is going to adapt in that battle space so you have to have a learning system if you want to invest in systems that are going to protect you and you want to be operationally effective cost effective that's going to be a learning system if that learning system is out there you better hope it's smart enough to actually undertake adequate proportionality calculations. But I don't think that's very likely because they're not human in the way that you and I think about human proportionality calculations. But until they have greater cognitive and cognitive capacities, they're not going to be able to comply with moral and legal rules. But as a good political theorist, I wouldn't, you know, just want to have one thing. I have to oscillate a little bit more, right? But <laughs> the almighty but. If systems do possess these greater cognitive and cognitive capacities, then they may be moral agents as well. But if that's true, then they have rights and obligations too. If we create the artificial general intelligence, that. AI specialists are trying to get to right now, and they can do everything that we can do. If it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, then I'm, let's put it this way, if, if Intel is a, cor- is a moral agent, I don't know why that thing over there would not be considered a moral agent. So if that's true, they may have rights and obligations, and then there's all sorts of questions about conscription. <laughs> um, but until such a time that AWS possessed the moral faculty to permit the delegating to happen, the delegating of that authorization to use force, I think it is morally permissible to task them with this choice. They lack the moral as well as the technical capabilities to comply with moral and legal rules of armed conflict. But, the almighty but, in cases of defense, very narrow, very narrow cases, I think you could probably see their utility, but I also think that you may not actually have to task them with the selecting bit. So what do I mean? Well, if you had a system purely defensive, and we can talk about purely defensive, purely offensive, and then everything in between, but purely defensive, that is it does not activate unless it senses an incoming munition, munition, or mortar, or missile, or something like this that it's not, you know, it's actively scanning all the time, but it's not, you know, going really be like, oh, I just feel like today is the day, right? No, it's actively, it's only activated when it senses something incoming. Then I think what's happening is it's not selecting a target. The selection has come at some other point in time by some other agent. It's detecting, and then it's responding. I think selection has a very kind of gray... It could be defensive, in like these more kind of preventive defense, I'm responding to a threat kind of terms. Or it could be purely offensive. But I think we might square this circle by saying, actually, an autonomous weapon system that's purely defensive might just have to respond and react to an incoming threat. Incoming, not not perceive, not look shadowy out there. That guy looks a little shady, um, which we do have um, anomalous behavior recognition in crowds that we're using in the AI right now, I think that would be a bad thing to put on a weapon system. Um, so that's, that kind of very restrictive def- defensive reading, I think would would mean that you would um, not permit the systems to preventively strike. Ah, so good, I'm almost done. Um, and then I have a question, if that's true, we might just think of it as mere automation in some instances and not autonomy. But um, for the most part, I think we have to kind of say that these systems are not where we want them to be. And uh, if that's what autonomy truly is, we cannot permissively allow them to undertake offensive behaviors anymore. Thank you.